Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. Over 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. Teaching While White seeks to move the conversation forward and how to be consciously, intentionally anti-racist in the classroom. Because white does not mean a blank slate. It is a set of assumptions that is the baseline from which everything is judged. It is what passes for normal. Which means if you are not white or don't adhere to those assumptions, you are abnormal or less than. We want to have conversations about those assumptions, what they are, how they impact our students, and how we can confront our assumptions to promote racial literacy. You are listening to Teaching While White. In this episode, we explore the cost of ongoing racial segregation in schools, And here are our big questions. What price are we paying for racial segregation in the classroom? And what role can white teachers play to help solve the problems that come with racial isolation in schools? So first I interviewed Ralph Wales. Ralph is a white male headmaster at the Gordon School in Providence, Rhode Island. He spent a lot of his career trying to desegregate private schools. And I asked him what his motivation was and what working for equity has taught him. I have to say that part of what I've learned is that as you turn over a page around the topic, as we call them, diversity, and try to implement intention around that, there's another page that follows. But often, from my place as a privileged white male, I wasn't aware of what that page was. But trying to operate with integrity and not willing to go back on a commitment, that's something I've always felt in my life, that if you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. I was going to move into those pages, not because I was courageous, but more that I didn't want to be called, you know, um, called out as not being fully committed to what we were pursuing. So self-motivation was really not to be embarrassed by saying I was going to do something and then, in fact, not do it based on those people who had a deeper understanding of what I was trying to pursue. Those individuals that had a deeper understanding were always, initially, people of color within the Gordon School. So, for example, in my first year, I got an anonymous letter that, was, that wasn't signed, but was from a group of parents of color saying, your school professes to be engaged in diversity, but if you are, you know, there, there's, no, there's no substance here. There's, there's no real action. So I began to try to understand what that action was. Ralph described to me how he took action to start making his school more equitable. So the initial part of the work is, is, is almost embarrassing to say, but it was, of course, to populate the student body with more students of color. That seemed to be what diversity meant at the time in 1994 for me. It also included, almost concurrently, to develop a, a professional community that would also be more evidently racially diverse. Uh, and actually much more persistent and determined work around hiring a professional community that would have a significant number of faculty and staff of color. So that started moving, and then the pedagogic imperative was the next page. So it was was if you're going to populate your school in a way that it was not homogenous or one race or one class, then the teaching environment needed to change. You needed to have teachers and curricula that was relevant to the community that you brought in. 
And that had us focus on the work of James Banks and multicultural pedagogy, which we were able to stimulate inside of our faculty in a small group and then grow so that over 10 years' time, basically every instructor in the school was very well versed in pedagogic principles that were related to equity. So I've been learning all along the way, and I would say that the learning that's really been most challenging for me, which I only began to really explore, let's say, 10 years ago, is a notion of the operation of race and class-based privilege inside of independent schools. And I was saying that, I'm embarrassed to say that. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what kind of, how long does it take you to wake up to the reality that these are basically institutions founded on exclusion around race and class and religion and gender. That's how they came to be. They were sustained because they could draw in populations that liked to be together, that were very similar and homogenous. And in that effort, were able to sustain the privileges that were attendant to that group. That's why independent schools existed, is why they exist. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of things that I just understood to be intuitive to leadership were counterintuitive to equity. They just, the way I thought, the where, where I leaned into moving forward were places of familiarity. And I grew up in an entirely white community, in an entirely white school system, all the way through my high school years, and I was never all the way through graduate school taught by anything but white people. I was never taught by a person of color. So by no means have I become expert on how to, to lead with an understanding of my, my race and class-based privilege. However, I have developed a, an awareness that in every step I'm taking intuitively, I have to be very careful that I haven't um, just ignored or, or ignorantly pursued something that is not in the best interest of a diverse community. Ralph's realization that he must question every action that he feels intuitive raises an important point. When most of our white leaders have grown up in racially segregated neighborhoods and schools, how can they even envision an equitable system? When you're trying to be the leader, to have criticism come in as you're moving into delicate places, I can become very defensive. And uh, I've had to really be watched and supported by people who can help me get over my defensiveness and move the school into places that are not always comfortable for the dominant culture. And I will say, where I can feel like I've been successful, I do believe I've moved the dominant culture here into places that they're not familiar with. So that system, where those people who have resources, they're not bad people, they're good people, can influence direction, and those who may have less resource don't have the authority to influence direction. That has to be changed, or you're not running an equitable school system. So as you look inside of the school and inside of the classroom and talk about equity, you look, you have to, of course, it's not even subtle, but let's call them, look at the subtle influence, what we would call the hidden curriculum, or even the null curriculum, that in fact is driving the institution in a direction. And a head or strong leaders in the school have to hold onto that steering wheel and pull against the winds that are naturally going to draw it away from being the equitable environment that it wishes to be. I do have to ask myself, ultimately, is the model of an equitable independent school, is it just like one of those oxymorons? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't exist. And if, if that, in fact that's the case, maybe there has to be a recognition of the limitations of equity. And if that's the truth, then all I ask myself to do or anyone else is to name them, to state them. So as we get out and profess diversity or profess equity and inclusion, we are at least being transparent about what we can't do and what we won't do.
why is equity important in independent schools when, as you mentioned, they were built for segregation? Um, why is it important now that we desegregate our independent schools? Well, I think multiple reasons, right? I mean, you can just you can start with the old-fashioned reason that uh, the notion of setting up systems in a democratic society that separate people or give one group more power than another it goes against the the, the understanding of our founding fathers. I guess we could say that. So there's like a moral obligation of some kind that that would be a stimulus. There's other standard answers that I can sort of shake my head and sigh about, but I think they're true, although I'm tired of hearing them, but I believe them, <laughs> which is that we are educating the privileged. And so one would believe that in placing those individuals in schools that are really looking critically into issues of equity and really having those young people not only hear about it or feel it or think about things of equity, but really incorporate that as a way of interpreting the world, that as they become decision makers, it's, it, is, it is likely that at least initially they'll try to dismantle those systems because they will seem you know, counter to what they believe in or even counter against intelligent action. I think there is, in this country, there may be no better topic than race or race-based privilege or race and American history to develop an intellectual capacity to think fully and completely before you say you understand. Because in our country, I think that's the embedded theme that is buried and actually uh, continues to actually direct action in our country. Some would say it's class or other iterations of identity. I really believe it's race. What would you say to someone who says that actually kids of color cannot become self-actualized beings in a system created for white children by white people? I would say that it is a worthy comment. And, uh, you know, what that brings up for me is the notion of how independent schools initially went about this work which was they, they pursued student diversity. Usually um, it would, again, be African-American students, mostly because it made them feel better. Um, and so if you look at it from that perspective, there was no, there was very limited benefit, if any benefit, for those initial pioneers. And I can't even imagine what that experience would have been like. Well, books have been written about it. People, of course, have suffered immensely, even to the extent they even know, have given up their lives in, in having to experience that. So I know that that's the foundation, that it was done for the benefit of the people in these schools. And I often think about whatever the foundation of something was, until it's fully explored and understood, it continues to operate in the building. So the point you made with this question means that there is every likelihood that full actualization for students of color in these schools, and I would say, again, mostly, again, focusing on the African-American experience because of the history of enslavement in this country. It, it, it makes absolute sense that that may not be possible and that the benefit still might be mostly effectuated to the white students who otherwise would be growing up in segregated communities and segregated schools. That was Ralph Wales, who is the headmaster at the Gordon School. We agree with Ralph that white students clearly benefit from racially diverse schools. Researchers from the University of Michigan have shown that all children, 
but in particular, white children, show higher levels of critical thinking when they have the opportunity to learn with children from other racial and ethnic backgrounds. They are literally smarter when they get to learn in racially mixed settings. But how do we weigh this benefit against the racial stress that students of color experience in mostly white schools? So we reached out to Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr. Eddie is a black male diversity consultant and the founder of the National White Privilege Conference. Eddie often speaks on the issue of white women teaching black boys, and he asks this critical question. Can students of color be fully embraced and supported in predominantly white schools? So, um, Eddie, why don't we just start with a little background information on you, sort of. How did you get involved in working with teachers and looking at what's happening in schools? Yeah, my journey uh, really started in Iowa, which is where I did all my education. Uh, my undergrad was at a little small college called Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa. I was uh, visiting uh, some of the public schools in the community and really um, encountering uh, specifically young black males, but uh, kids of color in general who just had never had in these predominantly white spaces any positive uh, contact with black male educators. Uh, but what I was finding when I was in these schools is a lot of the white kids, I mean, I was literally the first black man they had ever, uh, in some cases, seen live, but definitely interacted with, shook hands with. Um, and wow. I can remember walking through some of the schools and kids would be looking at me saying, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, look, it's Michael Jordan. So uh, a lot of their first impressions, their first connection with me, um, even if they had some association, it was athletically oriented, stereotypical uh, uh, in reference to black males. So I really started to branch out and have some conversations with uh, white kids around just stereotypes and black males and black communities, then springing into just really helping a lot of white kids see and understand and get answers to some of the questions around these issues that they had no real person of color that they can ask or interact with around these questions. What are some of those questions um, that you feel like you're getting from these white students? Do they sort of cluster around a particular theme? Um, does it sort of depend on where you are? Are you seeing geographic trends? Because I know you travel all around the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, even though we have such a great and diverse nation, uh, the reality is we're still living very segregated lives. Mm -hmm. And so kids are still having... Um, some real basic questions about, I mean, essentially, what's going on there? What am I missing there? Uh, because they can't, and I hope they don't, rely on just what's being provided in mm -hmm. pop culture and TV. Uh, but then there are some, you know, specific questions about, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, what words do I use? Um, uh, what do I call them? What I've liked about my journey with kids around these issues, I've always felt that um, the vast majority of them were trying to get better or get a better understanding around these issues. Now, don't get me wrong, early on and still today, I still face some resistance around these issues, some denial 
around these issues and sometimes just some outright unwillingness to even have conversations or be uh, in a space where this conversation is going on. But um, I still feel like that that is not the vast majority of the students that I've encountered. On the other side of that, uh, the adults, uh, I still think that um, past, present, and it, it, it's starting to feel like even still out ahead of us, uh, there is still just a real incompetence around uh, some of the students that they're facing coming from the communities like where I come from, specifically black male students, uh, some real um, fear associated with that and some real um, stereotypical misunderstanding. So uh, I think I feel like there's been some progressive, I, I, I mean, some positive progression that I've seen over the 20 years I've been consulting around these issues. But it feels like some days the more things change, the more things stay the same. It's such sort of a low level, I mean, or basic level of information that I think these kids are asking for. I think I wonder sometimes with adults, we're so, our notions around race have been so complicated, right? Because we have this whole lifetime. And I feel like I have a similar experience in talking with um, young white kids that a lot of times they just want the basic information. They just, and to your point about the language, you know, can I call, is he black? Are you African-American? You know, I I don't even, like, I don't even know what term to use. So I can't even have a conversation with you because I'm not sure how to refer to you. And I think that's probably all intentional and how racism works. But are you seeing some good strategies out there? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, time now because I think for so long there's been um, uh, um, a real strategy of colored blindness. I love everybody. I treat everybody the same. And I think in recent years with their work and research around unconscious bias and uh, the science around dispelling color blindness, it's really been a helpful tool to uh, say to teachers, to say to administrators, I mean, you can't operate on that um, foundation of, of colorblindness that you've believed in for so many years that everybody's got bias, everybody's got work to do. Uh, so I think because of that, that has allowed and really presented a um, need for educators, for teachers to say, I got to do something. Uh, at least basic, uh, like I said, uh, like we were saying. I mean, even if it's understanding the language on what to say, what not to say. Um, even though, even if it's understanding stereotypes, basic stereotypes in the process of how they impact you in the way that you possibly teach, uh, grade, discipline, select curriculum, so on and so forth. So I think we have a real responsibility as educators to help our young people to be better prepared, to be better skilled, because if they're not in the 21st century, it could cost them a job opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, College acceptance, uh, uh, all kinds of stuff, right? A career, so on and so forth. Are you hearing a different na- uh, narrative from the kids of color you're working with, or even specifically black boys, about how they feel like they're experiencing whiteness and confronting whiteness, whether with their peers or in their classrooms? We now have uh, our, our kids really being challenged around what it is to be black and successful, mm. um, and and 
and and the real identity development in these super white, predominantly white institutions often um, constructed for the benefit of white people and whiteness. And so there's some real success when you get there and people are like, oh, my gosh, he goes to Super Academy X. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the stakes are so high that you don't want to screw, the, you don't want to mess that up, and you will make all kinds of adjustments in who you are and where it is you come from. And so even though you graduate from Super Academy X at the highest level, going to Super University X, you're the farthest from who you were when you got there. Absolutely. And so I think that, for me, that's where there's some real work to do. The old success model in the super private school industry was keep your head down, Mm -hmm. uh, keep it right, keep it white. Um, And... Uh, I feel like now kids are starting to say, no, I'm going to be in the spirit of James Brown, right? Like, I'm going to get my education, and I'm going to say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. It is exciting to see kids want to claim and be who they are while being successful in some of the environments that are deeply entrenched in uh, white cultural dominance uh, for hundreds of years. What are these institutions willing to change on their part as opposed to asking these kids to assimilate? You know, like you said, the old model was come in, keep your head down, do it our way, do it the white way, and we'll sort of get you through. I mean, Eddie, if I could give you a magic wand right now and you could have a group of white teachers in front of you to, d- to deal with this issue, what would be your advice for white teachers? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it may take sheer magic uh, to get that uh, done, (laughs) but I think uh, through the process um, um, and the attempts to uh, reach that goal, uh, I I think of three things that come to my mind is really uh, starting early. Um, Some of my frustration is I feel like I'm facing teachers, and for the first time, this is the time that they're grappling with this issue. Um, and we know from anything, from athletics to theatrics uh, to instruments, like if you do it over and over and over again, you get better at mm-hmm. it. Um, and I just think, I feel like I'm sometimes frustrated because it's just appearing to me that teachers are starting too late. So that would be number one, mm-hmm. is get started early. Uh, number two is really uh, dealing with um, uh, essentially uh, the fear of the black male. Um, and there's some real um, institutional systemic embedded structures that I think continue to feed, particularly white women, mm. um, and in this case white women teachers, a fear of the black male. And so there's some real work that has to be done uh, in collaboration with possibly black males, uh, people of color, but primarily with white women, working with white women, working through essentially what I would call the fear of the black man. And then lastly, I think we need courageous uh, leadership. I feel like um, uh, uh, some of my additional frustration with white women that 
they are given some access. Actually, we noticed through research, through affirmative action research, they're given and have been given some real access to jobs and job opportunities, and especially in the uh, educational arena where they are superintendents or mm-hmm. principals or vice principals or head of schools or assistant head of schools, admissions. Ah, you can go on down the line. Right. And I feel like when they rise to those positions, they take on the identity of whiteness, of the white mm-hmm. cultural dominant structure, as opposed to uh, really um, rising to those positions and understanding uh, who they are, how they got there, the challenges associated with that, and then and really creating courageously and challenging courageously some of the white dominant structure mm-hmm. that um, have been in place. Uh, I feel like they've climbed that ladder and essentially shut the attic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they're not reaching back. Yeah, they're not that's right. Back. That's right. That we need more courageous leadership that says it's time to open the attic, the windows, mm-hmm. uh, the basements, the garage. I mean, let's get as many folks in here as we can because we know that this has not been um, a, a an opportunity that other folks have had access to that I now find mm-hmm. myself in. Is there a part of you that maybe thinks this project that we're all involved with to truly try to desegregate our schools, um, are, we in a, are we in a fool's errand? Like, can it really not be done? And are we actually sacrificing children of color? Absolutely. But white kids, too, because we're raising them in ignorance. Yeah, I go back and forth on that, to be honest, which I do think that if we see a ongoing failure from white teacher teaching specifically in the work that I'm doing around black males, that we need another option. Mm. Um, is that segregation? Uh, um, uh, I, I don't know, but I think that it feels like there can be ongoing failure around this specific topic, uh, primarily because there's no consequence for failure. thing that I look for is when people are essentially um, uh, um, uh, uh, hopeful or uh, feeling like there's a possibility of something different, but they have action um, behind them. And so that's really where I come up with this new terminology. I tell people all the time, I'm not optimistic. I'm not pessimistic. I'm what I call pessimistic. And what that nice. means is um, I feel like it's real. It's a real privilege to be optimistic and you're not doing anything. You're not showing any evidence of work. And so what pessimistic talks about, what pessimistic presents is an opportunity to be optimistic, but you have to demonstrate action, what it is that you're doing. Mm. And so I don't know what will um, present 25 years from now. But I do know if we keep presenting what we presented 25 years previous, I have some real concerns for the success of black males in education. Talking to Eddie made me think about the research that shows that teacher expectations are the best predictor of student achievement. And here's something else. When students of color are asked why they did well in a particular class, 70% of them say it's because of a particular teacher. They attribute their success to the care and attention they got from a teacher. By contrast, only 30% of white students say that. 
Most white students say that they are just good at a particular subject or that they like a particular class. But if the majority of students of color are citing their relationship with their teachers as their reason for success, what happens in the classroom when most of those teachers are white? Eddie spoke of the fear white women feel about their black students. Many white teachers are afraid of their students of color and also unaware of their racial bias. And some white teachers are so concerned about not appearing racist that they don't really consider what's going on for their students. This is something Alethea White has thought a lot about and she's lived it. Alethea identifies as a black or Afro-Caribbean woman. She went to a predominantly black public school through middle school and then a predominantly white independent high school. Alethea is a director of equity inclusion at an independent school in New England. In our conversation, she talked about her experience attending two types of schools and how it informs her work today. So all the schools I went to, um, they would always say 99.1% black, and there might be one white student or someone who identified as multiracial, although that wasn't as popular then, um, but they were predominantly or exclusively black. So how did you end up leaving a school that was your local schools? So when I was in the seventh grade, a a representative from a program called Prep for Prep came into my school. And Prep is an access program in New York City. It's similar to a Better Chance or the Oliver Scholars programs or other programs that um, center in major cities that give students scholarship options to either suburban schools or independent schools. Some of them are in New York City, and but most aren't. It's really interesting being on the other side of it now because in my current work, I am the institution that is working to work with these programs that are similar to Prep for Prep. So now I have a sense of you know, what the schools are thinking and looking at. And um, I always wrestle with that to, to recognize that like I was once thought of and considered that the same way. Alethea described to me how completely disoriented she was when she arrived at her new, predominantly white, boarding school. I remember getting out and not being able to discern anything. Like, just everyone, nothing was standing out to me. Everyone seemed like they were wearing the same things. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on. I feel like wherever people put me, I can figure out school. But there was a lot of empty time before school started of orientation days. And I just remember thinking, like, get me to the, get me to the school part. I don't know what anyone's talking about. Um, I remember people asking me questions that I think for some of them were sincere, but just felt so ridiculous. Questions about... Um, you know, where I was from, why I spoke the way I spoke, what was I wearing, had I seen people be shot before, did I, just questions that I didn't know people would really ask. I thought, initially I thought they were jokes that I didn't think were funny, but then I realized people were like really sincere or at least doing a good show of it. So were you ever the only person of color in, in a class? Oh, I was... I was always the only, I mean, I might not have been the only person of color, although many times I was, but I was certainly the only black person many times a day. Mm. So 
I know looking back on this, you have a different awareness of maybe that you had at the time. What do you think the cost was of that experience for you? I think the cost is that everyone is is paying the same metaphorical price, right? So there's an independent school. We're all working really hard. So people say, well, boarding school's hard for everyone. You know, everyone's away from home and everyone, everything's unfamiliar to people. And yes, but no. Um, and so my experience was not the experience of every black student at my school. Um, and so I think the cost was feeling like I had to be doubly prepared. Like I just couldn't show up and just um, be average. I stood out physically, I, I just stood out. So I knew I was going to get called on. I also felt like if I got something wrong that I, there was no permission to get things wrong because I think I assumed and was told that people didn't think that I belonged there, that I wasn't intellectually um, comparable to other people. So I always felt like I had to prove that I was as intelligent and that I deserved to be there. And then I think when you have the extra burden of not being seen as a peer, an intellectual peer, I think you have a challenging uh, curriculum anyway, and then you have to um, constantly prove to people that your, your presence there isn't an accident or charitable, that you worked as hard and in many cases harder to compensate for things that your classmates um, were just given. And that's no more their fault than mine. But I think that when, the, when there's no recognition of that, I think that that makes it really challenging. So I always felt like I performed in spite of, not because of, the culture of my school. What Alethea describes is the definition of privilege. It is not necessarily about having more, but the absence of carrying an extra burden. I mean, it's the, it, there are the small things and the big things, right? So there are the, you know, when, you're, when you get called the other black girl's name, although you don't look alike, you don't have similar names, right? So those are the constant messaging that like, I just don't actually see you. Nothing about you is really sticking with me. We sell on the website that it's a small, intimate community. I've been here for three years. It's not that hard. Um, or when you're in class, you know the you know the, the stories kids are still telling that irritate me. When you you're going to read, you know Huck Finn or Beloved, or things fall apart, um, and you're like, I didn't know about these people at the time, but you're like, where are James Baldwin? Where is Zora Hurston? Where are people who have positive things to say about being black? So I think that's hard when a curriculum is built around struggle. And I think that's an important part of the black American story, but it's not the only part. Um, and so I think there's this presumption of like black or brown skin, we know your story. And so kid, I think students and teachers would look to me for um, support or connection when we would read text in class, like looking to me for approval that it was okay to do and say certain things, that as a 15-year-old in the class, it was not my position to give that kind of like authority. Do you think there was a price you paid for being at your elementary school where there weren't other students of other races besides black? Was, was there a price to that or, or did it bolster you for the experience you had? So the price I paid um, was that I didn't have access to resources, human, intellectual, uh, in terms of facilities that I know that schools that are predominantly white 
in the same borough of New York City that I grew up in, miles away, had access to. And the only difference between those two schools were the demographics of the students who attended. So I paid a price in that way. Psychologically and spiritually, no. Um, I think that it was amazing to grow up and feel like um, who I am, my culture, is normative, or at least a norm. It's, it's a reality. Um, and to be in a space where I wouldn't say all of my teachers did real deep work. I mean, again, if you grow up in America, you are, even in a black school, blackness is not centered. So that's just another price you pay. Um, but I think that teachers tried to have reflections of um, blackness or Caribbean identity like in our school in a way that felt as celebrated as it can be in our society. Do I think that students need, all students need curriculum that is relevant and reflective and accurate about our, his, our country's history and that accurately places different groups of people in that history? Yes, and I think that that should happen wherever kids go to school. But until that is something that is, is that we're, we're willing to confront in a real way, and we stop making textbooks that call slaves workers, and we stop, call, we stop calling slaves immigrants, um, then it doesn't matter where the kids go to school. I asked Alethea if it was difficult for her to justify helping families of color come to a predominantly white school, knowing firsthand the psychological toll it can take. Um, I think, one part of being truly free or liberated or whatever word you want to use is the ability to make a choice. And to make a choice means that you have more than one reasonable, accessible option. I think so long as students have to make those choices and there are parents who want certain opportunities for their children, then I want to be here to make sure that their child has the most dignified experience that they can have. And that is something that I grapple with every day because sometimes I wonder if showing up is just one more perpetuation of a system that really troubles me. So it occurs to me while she's talking that we keep putting the responsibility on the students for making an impossible situation work instead of asking the institution to make real change. So why haven't schools been able to become truly inclusive? What I think white people are not willing to concede is access and authority and, and resources, right? And so when people say, I want to send my kid to an integrated school, white people, they're saying, I want to send my child to a school that has a few brown faces. They're not saying, I'm willing to um, be a part of redistribution of access of wealth that has like historically advantaged me because I'm white. So I think that there is like spiritual, mental, emotional um, benefits that come from being in spaces where people have a shared history with you, certainly. And I think anyone who's ever attended a pre predominantly black school, whether it's an elementary school or a college, um, knows about that. Even people who attend, like myself, attended white schools know that there's always someone on campus, whether it's the person at the bursar or the registrar or in the cafeteria. There's always a space that someone of color is creating um, to mimic that kind of, um, that need for kind of like reinforcement to, to be successful in a white world. Those are happening all the time, even when white people aren't aware that they are happening. Um, but until we deal with 
access to wealth and power, then it almost doesn't matter. Or it's, it's always going to be um, a Band-Aid to like a gunshot wound. And the, and the Band-Aid matters, but it doesn't deal with the gunshot. Our guests have left us with more questions. What would it really mean to confront the legacy and lie of separate but equal? How can we really achieve integration? And what are white people willing to give up to have equitable schools? White teachers have to be first and foremost committed to a healthy experience for all children. We are going to have to call out these disparities and talk directly about how they impact learning We, as white teachers, need to name those fears if we are ever going to close the expectation gap. How can we get white teachers committed to the notion of exposing power and privilege wherever it may be? Do white kids know that they play by a different set of rules? Do the kids of color know? Perhaps teaching while white means we have to expose the two sets of rules and two sets of expectations. Until next time, this has been Teaching While White. Thanks to our guests, Ralph Wales, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., and Alethea White. Our story editor for today's episode is Kate Ellis. Our mixer and editor is Lyra Smith. Our theme song is written and performed by Todd Beerson. Thank you for listening. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward, and this is Teaching While White. Teaching While White.